G'day folks and welcome back to Plan Crazy Down Under, episode lucky 13 of the podcast where every week we look at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. Steve Fisher with you back once again and with me as always is Grant McCarran. How are you Grant? Yeah, not too bad mate, not too bad. Pretty sad and upset that lucky 13 struck so badly with us. Uh, yeah, as you'll hear folks, we had a few problems with our sound quality this episode, uh, some Skype dropouts and all sorts of hassles. So of all the time for it to happen, it's a lucky 13 and and B, right when we're having a really great interview with some amazing content. Yep, notwithstanding that, uh, we're going to uh, go ahead and publish this one, folks. And this is another one in our, uh, what we've decided to uh, term a series of uh, in-profile interviews of uh, local aviation identities in the Australia-Pacific region. And this week, we're talking to a gentleman by the name of Mr. Owen Zup. Now, uh, Owen's had a very, very interesting career. He currently um, is a, a domestic airline pilot. He uh, started his career as an ambulance officer. He's been a flying instructor, and he's done many, many other things and he's got a really interesting project on the go planned for next year, which uh, you'll hear him talk about in the latter stages of uh, the interview. So, um, yeah, uh, real pleasure to meet him. And we recorded this interview about three nights ago. Now, just an apology up front, folks. Uh, as Grant mentioned just before, we um, did have some some huge trouble with Skype uh, the night that we recorded this, and the audio is not the best. Um, however, the, the bonus is that uh, the audio coming from Owen of the three of us is the best and um, let's face it it's our interviewee whose dialogue is what we're all here to listen to um, so oh really oh <laughs> oh I didn't know that oh sorry Grant sorry yes well <laughs> dude I was, I was trying to sugarcoat that for you mate I'm going to slink away now <laughs> <laughs> no as, as Steve's saying it's um, it's got some there's some great content in this interview. That's why we're publishing it. It's definitely not up to our usual standards of uh, audio and production quality. Steve's worked really hard to resurrect anything he can from the uh, discussion. He's uh, put together a great episode despite the quality of what we had to work with. So please focus on the content. We're apo- we apologize for the sound quality and we hope you enjoy the show. Yep. And with that, we'll uh, just launch into the interview now with Owen's up. Owen, thanks very much for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks for the invitation. Great to be here. Excellent. Well, uh, we thought we'd uh, use our normal format for interviewing. And, you know, we've we've only interviewed um, precisely one professional flyer so far. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're uh, we're taking all the information that we have on you uh, straight off your uh, website, which is uh, thereandback.com.au. And um, I guess we should start by talking about your days as an ambulance officer. Would you prefer ambulance officer or paramedic, which is the more? Uh, well, well, in my day, ambulance officer and paramedic were two different terms. That uh, you did your four years or whatever as a, a general duties officer. And and then did the intensive care course and that qualified you as a paramedic and I was on the cusp of doing that actually when I went into flying uh, one of my regrets is I didn't go that little bit further and get the shield but uh, uh, in retrospect you had to take the flying job when it, it appeared on the horizon too mm. so uh, but those four years in the email service were a fantastic time and that was back in the early to mid 80s uh, reading yeah 84 to 88 I was in the ambulance service in, in Sydney. Well, that were pretty interesting times to be an ambo. Yeah, yeah. It's um, It was one of those jobs that I think gave you an extra perspective in, in a life sense more than anything. I, I was 19 when I joined, so you sort of went from <laughs> virtually from high school to growing up. And I yeah. often look back and think, gee, where did I get the confidence from to walk into a total stranger's household and, and start directing traffic? But uh, I guess when you're 19, you don't know any better. But yeah. it, it, it was. It, it really gave you a, a balance of, of what the world's about that you, you often don't get from other jobs. And um, on the aviation side of things, I've absolutely appreciated every second I've been paid to fly aeroplanes ever since because I realised just how undervalued and underappreciated the emergency service workers are generally and so many careers 
So for someone to pay me to fly an aeroplane ever since I, I drove ambulances has, has been an absolute privilege. When you were uh, spending your time in the ambulance service, were you flying through all that time? or uh, that sort Yeah, of- I, I basically took my New South Wales Health Department check to the Royal Aero Club of New South Wales. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, and, and it, it funded my, my flying training and, and between shifts I'd go to uh, Tech College or as it is now, TAFE, and do my subjects. So that process took well, three to four years, and uh, yeah, it paid my way through whilst I was in the ambulance service. So whilst okay. I wasn't driving ambulances, I was learning to fly. Wow, cool! And a lot of two-minute noodles. Yeah, there were there were more than you'd, you'd like to remember. Actually, <laughs> I, I'm starting to get worried that you knew me in those days because that's exactly what the contents of my, my cupboard was a lot of the time. Yeah, been there, done that. <laughs> yeah, but um, no, it, it was a great time. I have very very fond memories of that job and i think it's a, a great profession I, I take my hat off to the guys that are doing it as we're speaking here and was the intention always to go through to your commercial or was that just sort of something that occurred to you i mean i know that's the way it was for me when i started flying it was gee whiz this is fun to do as a hobby but uh, you know you find it's a very expensive hobby and inevitably you start looking at you know, how do i make a buck out of this yeah no it was always definitely my intention to go uh, commercial I'd always wanted to be a pilot since I could walk and um, I my father was in aviation and I, I when I first left school I actually got a business cadetship with the Swire group uh, who funnily enough owned Cathay Pacific but uh, ah. the, I, I was with Fridgemobile which was their frozen goods storage and transport division but the bottom line was the cadetship meant you worked extremely long hours and, and for a fairly average wage um, until you got through the course and at that time obviously you went through the management ranks but uh, what occurred out of that was my father was flying the aerial ambulance in New South Wales and I was over at the um, hangar one day and I spoke to some of the guys who were driving the ambulances and they basically worked four days on four days off and I thought gee this this opens up some opportunities to learn to fly so Mm. my initial incentive to join the ambulance service was that it fitted in with learning to fly but once you were in there you wouldn't have lasted four years uh using that as your motivator you had to actually enjoy what you do and um and take it very very seriously so uh no always wanted to be a commercial pilot no two ways about it and one thing i've noticed i'm a uh, cfa firefighter down here in victoria and uh, we do a little bit of work here and there with the ambos down here and, and the one thing you notice with all of those guys is how focused they are to their job i guess that that sort of focus would have really suited you well for your flying training absolutely yeah yeah definitely i, I think one of the things i did notice when i was in the ambulance service too that it's focus at the appropriate times you you can't be on edge the whole time when you're at the job and you do the job but away from it a good sense of humor and knowing how to wind down is equally important i think but knowing when to focus and paying things due attention when they need to be attended to. It's definitely an important aspect of both of those careers, yeah. The ability to multitask in everything you do would, would uh, you know, it's something that would pertain, I guess, specifically to ambulance officers, but uh, it's certainly something that comes into play when you're flying. Yeah, yeah. It, it's multi. Uh, the ability to multitask and probably even more to the point is not to get myopic, is not to become focused or uh, obsessed with one aspect. You don't turn up to a patient and look at one injury and, and forget get to examine the whole patient similarly in an aeroplane if you have one malfunction or one issue you don't just focus on that to the degree that you neglect everything else around you as much as multitasking i think it's it's more the ability not to get myopic and and 
overly focus on one aspect that might have initially caught your attention. That definitely, that whole focus thing comes to uh, play with the flying, definitely. It's sort of like what we're talking about with Matt, with visualization and focusing on what he's doing. So your ability to, to focus when focusing is required definitely comes through in the cockpit, doesn't it? Yeah, oh, for sure. You, um, As I said, you, you spend a lot of hours mm. in the cockpit, you spend a lot of hours on shift in the ambulance service. You couldn't, yeah. in any task like that, you couldn't be expected to be highly focused for the entire period you need to um know have a general scan it's like driving a car for instance you drive along you don't sit there looking am i doing 78 kilometers an hour you drive there you take the visual cues and you've got a rough idea of the position of the needle on your speedometer and an awareness of the traffic around you it's when the things start to close in on you or they become critical that you then uh, increase that focus and, and i'd say those jobs are pretty much the same you have your fundamental scan that takes the data in and you process it but once things ramp up a little bit you've got the uh, reserves there to increase that focus so yeah the two the, the two jobs do supplement themselves to a degree plus they both have flashing red lights involved which is probably <laughs> that was probably the key thing that got me involved well, of course i never thought of that yeah yeah, flashing red lights. People get out of your way. That's all I yeah. So, so the being an AMBO definitely gave you a good foundation for dealing with the scenarios that you're going to encounter with your flying. So that does give us a nice segue into your flying. So you learned to fly with the Royal Aero Club of New South Wales. And uh, where did it go from there? Did it, at what point did you transition out of the AMBOs into permanent flying? Yeah, I um, there was a, a series of flying schools I went through prior to the Royal Aero Club in that uh, my father was actually my instructor. And uh, he knew a number of people around Bankstown who owned flying schools. So for the private licence, I think I did with Sydney Airways and uh, up to commercial with the Royal Aero Club and then with Whitworth Aviation, I did my instrument rating, each time Dad being the instructor and we hired the aircraft off the institution. And uh, it was around the time I, I was commercial licence instrument rated and the Royal Aero Club basically said, if you do an instructor rating with us, there's a very good chance you'll have a job as an instructor at the end of the course. And so I that would have been the start of night. Oh, early 1988 from recollection and I went off to do my instructor rating at the Royal Aero Club then so that was when I made the step from doing it as a part-time gaining of qualifications to a full-time profession. Well, I've, got, I've got one big question that's got to be asked what's yep. it like learning from your dad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah I get that one a bit. Um, <laughs> it, it, I, I'd always known when I'd had a good session because he'd tell mum uh, he, he was an ex-military instructor and he, oh, he was God. very very thorough very no he was, he was excellent in all retrospect in retrospect he um we i'd have probably have two to three hour briefings prior to the flight a day or two before we do the flight and then we'd probably have an hour or two um debrief subsequent to it so yeah. you just can't get that sort of uh, intensity it's just not commercially viable yeah, in no, that's very scenario so he was very good that way uh he was a little hard on saying gee you did well today son that was i don't think that was his forte but uh <laughs> mum had generally come up and say your father said you flew really well today but if, if i'd fallen short in any area he's pretty quick to let me know that but no he, he was tough uh, what did they say on monty python he was tough but fair <laughs> but no, I, I i really couldn't have asked for a better instructor and i've flown with a number of people who he instructed through the 60s and 70s and, and in the air force and the, 50s as well and and he was a very dedicated instructor he'd go the extra yard and he did that with me when i was in the cockpit i really wasn't his son i was a student and all students got the same attention so it, it was a 
a great time and, and he passed away when I was in my 20s so the fact that I got to share that time with him and have those experiences was an absolute bonus yeah no, that is that does bring you closer together than some father and son scenarios yeah yeah definitely I, I didn't have him for a long time but I had him for a good time yeah well what kind of aircraft did you learn in? predominantly the Piper Tomahawk initially yeah. I went solo in a Cessna 152 when I was about 16 and then uh, I, I the Cherokee 140 with the windshield wiper trim on the roof I did my <laughs> private license And then from then on, onto the Piper Tomahawk and the commercial I did in the Arrow 4 with the T-tail. Okay. And then the twin endorsement command instrument rating in the Duchess. Okay. So, How did you, uh, did you have any um, uh, hairy moments in the Trauma Hawk at all? Or? I own one now. Um, Very bright. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, uh, they bit my line for no reason. I think I, they they have to be flown at times compared to some of the docile store characteristics of other aeroplanes but i found them to be a very good trainer side by side seating with a, a little center console there afforded you a, a bit of space between the students that i never really found in the cessna mm-hmm. and um I, I love the fact that it's got a big red fuel cock accessible by both people left right and off uh on the cherokee you virtually have to put your head in the student's lap to Thanks. And on a night VFR exercise, hold the torch there, shining it, making sure they select it the right way. But no, I found the Tomahawk to be pretty good aeroplane. And, and as I said, I own one now. It, it, it definitely spun. I had some students that, that got a little nervous when it spun because they hadn't been in any craft that spun quite as well as it. That's uh, the one time I ever flew in, the, in, a, in a Tomahawk. That's uh, The instructor took it up and that's about the first thing we did was put it into a spin and I went straight back to the 152. I can tell you. Yeah, yeah the, it's mainly the, the high rate of rotation and you do lose a fair bit of height. They, they don't spin them now. Then I don't think they're even approved for spinning anymore but uh, back in the 80s they were pretty much the standard for spin training in many ways. Yeah, look High spin, high high rotation rate, high what is it? Um, high loss of altitude and high loss of lunch. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I had um, one student midway through a spin reach over and give me a big bear hug because he was getting a little bit nervous about it, which sort of meant no one was flying it, and I wasn't really in a position to recover it too well because he was bigger than me. But um, but he, he he soon let go of me. But yeah, no, I can't honestly say I had any any traumatic moments in the Tomahawk. In fact, a lot of my fondest memories of, of my early flying career. Are, those 6 a.m. starts dragging five aeroplanes out of a hangar and taking someone to do, go and do their trial instructional flight out over the Bankstown training area and, and getting paid to do it, coming home and back to the aero club and thinking, someone just paid me to fly an aeroplane. Yeah. Uh, I, I still look back on those days very fondly. Okay. How, how, oh, just on a side note, you mentioned the Bankstown um, training area. So this would have been back in the late 80s? Yes, it would have been, yep. Yeah, yep. so on, on a fine day, it was like I remember being out there in the late '80s one time in the or early '90s rather, and the and on a fine day, it was like traffic, traffic, traffic. Yeah. <laughs> Aircraft yeah, just I, turned around. <laughs> I, I I still fly out there, obviously from time to time, and um, I, I look back on those days and I think, gee, how didn't we? have more close calls you just you just had good look out and a heightened awareness of traffic i think that's all it was because yeah. to do a, a, a circuit session in those days you would have to call up from the aero club and they'd say okay start up at 10 past nine and shut down in the run-up bay and you'd sit at the run-up bay waiting for the green light from the tower to um or flashing light i forget what it was uh, to start your engine to get into the circuit it, it was just i was doing 90 to 100 hours a month of one hour sessions uh, yeah. in, in the 80s, late 80s. So it was it was busy times, and you're absolutely right. The training area was just a, a massive aircraft. Yeah, fortunately for us, we weren't doing circuits. I was just going flying with friends, so we'd <laughs> go and fang out there. But, uh, yeah, we 
uh, on this particular day, we just went, ah, oh, stuff this, and went, <laughs> went flew somewhere yeah. else and went home, you know? <laughs> was, yeah, yeah. It was another advantage of the Tomahawk in many ways because it had the big bubble canopy. You can really see behind you and above you. And Yeah. Um, but you, you did... Uh, you, you had to keep vigilant, and, and you still do. It, it, it's just one of those skills. Uh, lookout is, is ultimately important, very important. Yeah, we were in a CT4, so same kind of thing. Oh, canopy, yeah, great, yeah. great visibility out of the CT4. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, central console, all that stuff all over. I was just laughing yep, at when yep. you said it about the tomahawk. I was like, oh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, a lot of, <laughs> lot of commonality there, yeah. Yeah, definitely. We've, uh, just as a side note, uh, in a couple of previous episodes, we've been talking with uh, Bus Shepherds and um, about the changes to the gap procedures airspace. How do you think um, that'll affect places like Bankstown up, up your way? Yeah, uh, they're looking to bring it up uh, in line with Cat D airspace, from what I understand. Yeah. The, the, the main um, impact that I, I, and like I must admit, I haven't gone into it too deeply, but the main impact I, I sense is that the limiting of aircraft in the circuit without a certain number of controllers on is one of the commercial aspects that the flying schools are worried about, that they're going to have limited access to to the circuit for their training. Um, that seems to be one of their major reservations. Yeah, it's already sort of happening down here in Moorabbin where uh, you know, they've, they've, got, they've already got the thing where you've got a certain number of aircraft per circuit, per runway, per controller type of thing. And uh, yeah. Yeah, and there's the, I'm hearing from the guys up up in Sydney that uh, it's there and and here it's it's concentrating aircraft at the reporting points as they're trying to come in, and yeah. so that's shifted a lot of the problem out to the the reporting points that were already kind of well. That's where uh, two of the uh, air to airs happened in Bankstown were right at those reporting points, weren't they? Yeah, the the inbound points. Yeah, if it's yeah. moved the congestion there. Like I said, I haven't been into a gap for a little bit, but the circuit uh, or lack of circuit traffic was one of the commercial aspects. I know the flying schools had reservations about, but I, yeah. I can't say firsthand that I've seen it. Yeah. So uh, looking at your your bio here, Owen, um, it says after your instructing days, uh, or actually along the way, you flew air freight, charter, scenic flights, ferry flights. Yeah, if you had an aeroplane, I'd, I'd fly it. I, I wasn't particularly choosy. Uh, I, um, I left, uh, I, I think I had a grade two instructor rating and I went out to the Kimberleys and I, I flew up there for about a year in um, scenic work, charter work, did a little bit of instructing while I was up there as well. And uh, it was a fantastic time, great place to, to get your experience. And the fact that to a degree, Bankstown, you had to have a massive experience before you could get access to a multi-engine aeroplane. Whereas in the Kimberleys, if you were one of the company pilots and you endorsed on type and checked out, you were respected as a commercial pilot, take the aeroplane. It didn't matter which one it was. So it was where I really got my exposure to multi-engine flying early on, on the Cessna 310, etc. And uh, from there, I came back to Bankstown and uh, did a few things there. I back into the instructing in, in a CFI role, a chief flying instructor role and a test officer role for issue of and renewals of licenses and ratings. And in between, I was doing some ferry flying up to New Guinea, a little bit up to Micronesia, uh, did freight runs on the, the bank runs. Uh, uh-huh. throughout various ports of New South Wales. Yeah, to Dubbo and all that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had one out at Wagga, yep. Narandra, Gerildry, Daniloquin, and uh, down Nara, Maruya, Marimbula. I used to do that one as well. Did one up at Taree Way as well. But um, once again, wherever anyone wanted to send me in an aeroplane, if you'd pay me to fly, I'd go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're paying? Fine, I'm there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm still here? Oh, I'm gone. Yeah, no, it, it was... Um, it was very enjoyable and quite diverse, which I think was a good grounding as well. It was diverse in terms of aircraft type and also the types of operation and the people who you worked with and for. 
So it gave you a fairly good sample bag of what general aviation was about. Excellent. Yeah, Thanks. that's always a good thing. I know that. I mean, I did most of my tra- training over in the US, and over there, if you're a, going through the civilian uh, training, uh, you know, through the route of being trained under the civilian system, if you wanted to get in the airlines, that's one of the main ways to do it. Uh, at least back then when I was doing it, you had to you know, do all the night freight runs and, and all that sort of stuff to get your experience um, because you're competing against the guys coming out of the military. When you're exactly, and, and they have such vast numbers that coming out of the military there too. Yeah, yeah, it, oh, yeah. It, it, um, in my time then to get into the likes of Ansett, you didn't get an interview unless you had 1,500 hours multi-engine. Mm. So you had, it was critical to get that multi-engine time up and uh, the, the bank runs was one way. I also did a, a fair bit of multi-engine instructing and testing as well. So between anywhere I could get my hands on a twin-engine aeroplane to get those hours up to get the airline interview. Yeah, that was the guy I um, was flying with occasionally in uh, Sydney. He would he would love to do a no-sar, no-brains run up the coast in a duchess. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, get a few of us on board, split the cost, go have some fun. Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, it's it's probably one of the hardest steps, and I'm sure it still is in general aviation, is that, that transition from being a single-engine commercial pilot to get that multi-engine experience. The, the, yeah. the fleets, mind you, the fleets have changed too. There's more turboprops now that have a multi-crew situation at a, at a lower rank, uh, not a rank, but a lower rung within the industry. So there's metros, etc., on freight doing two-pilot operations. So people are able to get into the right seat at least of a, a multi turbine earlier than they ever used to. We, we used to just have the MU2s out at Bankstown. was about the only turboprop and the odd metro which was operated single pilot night freight up to Archfield. But other than that, you were pretty much limited to multi-engine piston. Yeah, because uh, the MU2 is a hell of a way to get your uh, teeth cut on um, on turbine. Because uh, you, I mean, nowadays you've got to uh, they're, they're practically bringing in a type rating for the MU2 because you've got to really be on the ball flying that thing. Yeah, yeah, I've only had one go at it. I was tempted to go and do an endorsement at one stage, but then I the, the career started to move again, and I um, got into the airlines. But having flown it just the once it, uh, with with a friend in the other seat, it, it really is an aircraft that. Anyone who's flown, like uh, there was an ex-military chap, for instance, and he said he didn't see any real vices with it. It just had to be flown exactly as it was specified. And it did have some insidious things. I understand that if it got icing, it could form on the the belly of the aircraft and that, which were um, Hmm. a a trait that it could wind back the trim with it a bit surreptitiously so you wouldn't notice in the cockpit and different things until the autopilot let go. But but as I said there, um, I, I'm really not in a position to comment on the Mew because I, I didn't didn't fly it and wasn't endorsed on it. But it, it, it was an aircraft, whereas Chieftains and Barons, I think, give you a bit of mush, a bit of buffet and a bit of warning. It was designed as a high-performance aircraft, so those those margins just weren't there in terms of a, a... It met all the specifications, but it didn't give you all the comfort warning signs that, that more conventional aircraft did. Yeah, it was. It's a, it's a mother of a mover and you've got to treat it real careful, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and just respect it and, and fly it as yep. it's um, meant to be flying. Because I was, uh, once was told, you know, the easiest thing to do is fly like a cowboy. The hardest thing to do is to fly <laughs> it per the procedures within the regulations, just as the designer yeah. specifies it to be flying. That's difficult. Yeah. There was a lot okay. of work at the time, back in those days, being done with Aero Commanders. Did you do any, uh, have any time in those? No, no, once again, I went for a ride along in a commander once. I liked them, actually. I thought it was a very nice aircraft. But, uh, no, I, I didn't do any time. Most of my freight was, was in 310s. 310s is what I did the bulk of my multi-time, uh, 310s and barons, and some time in chieftains, some in Aztecs, Islanders, and uh, what else, duchesses. Okay. Yeah, a bit mix of piston twins. I, I really didn't get 
near the turbo props. I got into the the first turbines pretty much was when I I got on the seven three seven. Okay. Yeah. The, um, the the we've got a bunch of commanders that do the bank runs here out of Essendon in the morning. About seven thirty in the morning, you hear them all going out somewhere around yeah. seven thirty. It's that's a great sound. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a bit of a um a ritual, isn't it? I, I yeah. remember when the bank runs would go out of the morning, it'd be that those cold frosty mornings and the cleaning of the windscreens, and then one by one they'd fire up and yeah. uh, just launch, and you'd be lined up as soon as the other guy went off the far end of the runway. It was it, it was it was good fun. In fact, I can't think of any level part of my career that I didn't really enjoy. So I've been pretty lucky. Oh, we get to we get to watch them sometimes when the balloons fly into Essendon, and um, I'm ground crew with the balloons, so I'll be down there waiting for them, and we'll be going out retrieving. And if it's the right time of year, uh, we're just waiting to go and cross back across the runways with the uh, ground security guys, and there'll just be the conga line of commanders waiting to go. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Now that Essendon's always been um, uh, in line with the commanders, um, I'm trying to think of the chap's name who, um, Steve Knott, I think it was, uh, who, who got the Aero Commanders sort of up and running down there. But okay. uh, yeah, no, it, it's it was a very enjoyable job. That the worst part of it was the sitting around all day waiting to come back in the afternoon. Yeah. At times, but uh, the, the actual flying was quite a lot of fun. Yeah, it's shifted a bit these days. You see a few of the guys uh, taking Nintendo DSs as well as books and yeah. stuff to read. <laughs> no, no, we, we didn't have such luxuries. It, it, <laughs> I, I probably still wouldn't have been able to work them, but I, um, <laughs> we, we, it was pretty much just the hotel room and a book or a TV. Yeah. I vividly remember that the, the one in Daniloquin was opposite Retrovision or whatever, and they had their loudspeakers playing Celine Dion every day when I was trying to catch oh. catch a bit of sleep. Suicide. <laughs> yeah. Like money for that for your ears or anything? Yeah, no, no, no. But I could probably give you a few bars of The Power of Love if you wanted. <laughs> no, no, sorry. This is a family show. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, from there, Owen, you uh, headed off into the airlines and got a job with uh, Ansett Airlines. Yeah, I, I initially got into Kendall's and uh, did the ground school on the Metro 2 in the November, I think, of 93. And then they said, look, we're not going to have any more recruitment on the Metro 2. We're getting a Metro 23. So I went back and did the ground school on that again in February or March. And I was actually on the Metro course when Ants rang up and said, you've got a job there. So I, I did two Metro courses and never flew the aeroplane. <laughs> uh, uh, but I um, went from that to the induction course at Ants in early 94 and on the 737. And it was there on the 737 for the whole time that Ants had existed until 2002 and had an absolute whale of a time. It was great. And now at this point, uh, the audio got so bad that I had to cut it out, but uh, the question I asked here to Owen was uh, regarding Kendall Airlines and its role as a feeder airline back in those days into Ansett. So here's his response to that question. Definitely, yeah. There was a gentleman's agreement too, I believe, that uh, if you got into Kendall's, Ansett wouldn't take you for two years so that they didn't poach to a degree that hampered Kendall's, from what I understand. So, um, you know, it was an official policy, I don't think, but most of the guys who went into Kendall's and into Ansett usually did about two years in Kendall's, which allowed them to sort of justify their training costs, etc. I guess that situation that they were trying to avoid is the same situation that operators like Rex find themselves in these days where the big airlines are just poaching away their pilots pretty much as they need them. Yeah, when, when the, the industry's booming, definitely, yeah, because they're, they're obviously prime operators coming from a multi-crew turboprop environment uh, into an airline is one of yeah. the major airlines is an easy transition. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those unfortunate food chain things that um, always tends to eat at the, the lower levels of the food chain. And, and I think once this economic environment turns around, you'll probably see it go again with a bit of a rush because the shortage that was occurring before this global financial crisis hasn't gone away. It's just been masked by 
by the downturn. If anything, there's been even less training in the last six to 12 months. So when things do turn around, I think it'll be even more critical. Yeah. And you've got the whole Asia, India, um, China area about to go boom. Yeah. And any upturn, and I think it'll show it for the underlying shortage that there is at the moment. We're, we're existing on what we have because there is the downturn, but things get back to 80% of the level they were. Yeah, I think it'll start to manifest in a shortage. Now, Owen, it's interesting you're mentioning the, uh, you know, the ramping up and the demands and sloping pilots out of the usual channels so that there was a drying up. I mean, at the, the peak of the demand most recently, they were actually advertising for positions up in the north, which has never really occurred before. And uh, in the middle of all that came the MPL, the multi-pilot, uh, multi-crew pilot license, which is where they're training people. They've never really flown a real aircraft, uh, maybe a little bit of time in a light jet or a light twin, but most of their flying time is in the simulator. Um, they, they come out, they've got a type rating, all that kind of stuff. They've been trained in, uh, in full multi-crew cockpit resource management and so on. And what do you think of that? I think ultimately it's where um, aviation training is headed, if, if not the, the entire amount of it, a fair percentage of it, because uh, as long as the training's of a quality, they'll um, be type trained. It'll be rather specific training. There'll be resistance to it in the, the initial stages, no two ways about that, but I think in the long term, multi-crew pilot licence will be the most cost-effective way of getting the number of pilots they will need into the aircraft. Yeah, it does help when you've got a huge demand and they've already slurped up everyone. I mean, we've seen it during the high, the high peak of demand. You had 250 to 500 hour junior pilots in the right-hand seat of jets. Yeah, the, the minimum requirement for um, many airlines around the world has been in the vicinity of 500 hours, etc. Australia has always been a fairly uh, high time entry into the airline world by world standards. So I don't think it's an overly new concept in in terms of the experience level, but the fact that it is absolute tailored training is where it's more of a frontier, I'd say. And and as I've mentioned on other occasions, when you uh, consider that the Air Force can take a chap and, and turn him into an F-18 pilot in, in two years or so with specific type training, then I don't see there's any reason they, they can't effectively train someone to sit in the right-hand seat of a, an airline category aircraft once again it all comes back to the quality of training and it comes back to um, the quality of the individual undertaking that training the, the air force they put in high quality training into high quality individuals and get a high quality product and if, if they take the same approach with the mpl i don't see why it'll be any different yeah that well the first the first class graduated and wound up fl- uh, flying for asian airlines and uh, they they graduated just before the uh the crash the recent crash so i'm not sure if any of them are still flying at the moment or if they got sidelined and get, will get picked up when it all picks up again but uh I'm not sure if they've done any more than that one course, the, the yeah. one here, in, the one here in Queensland, anyhow. There'll definitely be some lessons to be learned in the in the first few years, I gather, from the uh, the training system, because as you can understand, in any system that you implement, you're going to have hiccups along the way and things that you wish you'd done differently, and the MPL will be no different. But as long as they continue to review and improve, I, I think it will be the way that it goes in the future. There'll be resistance. There'll be people who don't like it, but it, from an impartial perspective, I, I would see that that'll be the most effective way to get the number of pilots that they will need in the future into cockpits. Any cultural shift takes a lot of understanding from those who haven't been through it. A lot of them won't understand what the process is for starters, but it, um, it'll it take a while for people to adapt. Glass cockpits take a while yeah. for people to adapt. There's been numerous changes along the way. Monoplanes, you want to take the top wing off a biplane, you can't do that. You know? um, so, and, and 
inherently in aviation where, where people of, of procedure and habit. So it, it takes a little bit of lateral thinking there. And in time, we'll look back and say, gee, these guys used to go to the bush for two years before they did that. So it's more a, an indication of, of where we're at at the moment than where the industry will go. But as I said, I think it is ultimately the way that a percentage, I'm not sure which percentage of pilots will be trained to go into multi-crew operations. Yeah, that's a good point. Someone like me, uh, you know, I mean, I, I started into flying with, with dreams of flying in the airlines and it didn't work out for me, but that would certainly offer an opportunity for someone like me to, to maybe reconsider. Well, the, the, course, the, the course to that right-hand seat will be far more direct and, and less ambiguous, I think. Uh, there's a lot of good pilots who've gone through GA, etc., and when they've come up to the, the airline selection process have dipped out for one reason or another. From what I understand in the MPL, generally they're sponsored persons going to an airline and the airline said, yeah, this is our group of people, train them up for us. So they've been through those skills test, psych test type hurdles beforehand. So it's um, that ambiguity later in the career doesn't occur. They get that out of the way up front. Yeah. And, and once, uh, from what I gather, they're sponsored individuals for that airline. You, yeah. You don't generally sign up for an MPL course unless you've got a job at the end of the, the training. Yeah, no, you have gone through a lot of pre-selection and things like that to make sure that you're someone that they'd want in general. And then if you so that if you do get through just by the other end, you've got a very good chance that uh, you'll still be there, you'll that you'll still be someone they want, and you'll still be someone who wants to fly for them. Exactly, which once again is, is somewhat parallel to the way that the Defence Forces do it as well, and that you go through yep. all that screening before you do your first hour, before you go to your rookies course or anything you, you are yep you're the sort of person we want now let us take you on board and and um, turn you into what we need and and I think once again that initial testing the skill set they'll be looking for for a pilot in a multi-crew sense may well be different from what they've looked for in psychological profiling etc for different avenues previously that they'll define this is what we want for someone in a highly automated multi-crew environment and the profile will be different and it'll take a while to evolve what they actually want to I think yeah no it's, it's going be really interesting to see where this one goes it's yeah. it's definitely you know, the first few uh crews that come out of it will be watched like hawks that's for sure oh certainly certainly any any change is going to be scrutinized heavily what whatever yep. industry you're in yep and you'll have the people who regardless of logic will bag it and you'll have the people <laughs> regardless of logic who'll sing its praises i think yep. all we can do is is keep an open mind and watch the standards. If the standards come out and they're of an acceptable level, job done, task complete. Yeah. Uh, that that will be what the answer lies in is the standard of the graduate, not any perception of what the system is about. Yeah. Yeah, the proofs and the results. Dead right, yeah. All right, so uh, swinging back to, the, uh, to your history, Owen, and um, we wanted to touch on your time at Ansett Airlines. And just for our, before we go off on that, for some of our uh, international listeners who are probably scratching their head at this point and saying, Ansett Airlines, who are they? God, yeah. I, hope uh, not. I hope they're not. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, with the power of the internet, they've probably just done a search. It, um, yeah, Ansett, <laughs> was, Ansett was one of the primary domestic carriers in Australia, founded by Sir Reginald Ansett, and um, alongside TAA, Trans-Australia Airlines, which became Australian Airlines, they were the, the two halves of the two airline policy and were responsible for the domestic travel in this country up until about the year when did we fall over 2001 so it was a, a, a fair-sized airline by australian standards and uh it um had a fairly diverse fleet which ultimately i think was one of the factors in its downfall it had multiple types which come along with multiple training costs and multiple maintenance costs as well 
So it uh, it was a very good company to work for, but Sir Rod Eddington, who spent a time at the helm, summed it up as a, a, a wonderful airline with a lousy business, I think was his phrasing or something similar. And uh, he was probably pretty close to the money there. I didn't have an insight into the management aspect, obviously, but the fact that it went break tends to make it uh, sound like he did see it for what it was. In their latter years, a fairly significant part of them was owned by Air New Zealand, and uh, I believe that when ANSET finally went under, it came close to taking Air New Zealand with them. Yeah, I believe that was the case, yeah. and I think I think the New Zealand government came in and sort of underpinned Air New Zealand at the time. Yes, they did. Uh, so, it, it you know, it had a big impact not only on it, the answered employees, I should say, in the immediate sense, but there were the knock-on effects of the, the co-owners, which were in New Zealand, and, and obviously the flow-on in terms of traffic for Qantas, who had to pick up the, the people stranded around the ways. So it, it had a lot of knock-on effects across the Tasman as well. Well, it certainly opened a lot of doors for Virgin and so on, and there's been... Um, exactly. You know, there was also the whole Kendall and various other regional airliners, airlines that were feeding into ANSET and sort of either were or are officially or unofficially part of ANSET. And that's that's where uh, Rex has come out of those ashes, hasn't it? Yeah, well, you, you look at Rex, it's a very good example, actually, in that, um, and it's a shame while Kendall's and Hazelden, there were some great airlines in their own right founded by great people in this country, Kendall's and Hazelden, and you had Canellan and all sorts of aviation yeah. pioneers who started their own airlines. But in a, in a purely uh, clean, cold sense, you look at Hazelden's and Kendall's becoming Rex, and it's turned into a very efficient operation that even in the downturn, they are performing very well yep, so they are once again i'm just a pilot but i um obviously rex are doing something right in the managerial sense as well yeah no they've definitely got their head screwed on by the look yeah. of it um, yeah so it was a loss of two great airlines but luckily from that emerged one solid and steadfast airline which obviously supplied a lot of jobs for some of those who lost them yeah no it did help um now actually one of the things you did mention was uh the the multiple types that ANSET were having I, I think some people who aren't aware of what was going on in ANSET may be surprised to hear for an airline that's servicing Australia with back then 16 million people how many different aircraft types did they have uh, off the top of my head and within in the, the models, the, there were different variants too. I think there were three or four variants of the F-28, but from the top of my head, they had the Fokker 50, the BAE-146, different variants, the F-28, different variants, 737, all 300s. Then they had uh, the A320 and 767, and they did have, I think, a sole 300, 767-300 in the domestic side. Then you had um, the 747 operating yeah. Anson International and, and some of the 76s operated internationally as well. Yep. So I've, I've probably missed some obvious type there, which I'm sure someone will ring in and let you know. <laughs> but, um, off the top of my head, that, that was a fairly diverse fleet considering the network they were covering. Yeah, that's there were two major airlines, as you mentioned, the two airline policy that Australia had back in the 80s and so on. But that was, there was effectively the Qantas domestic, which was TAA, then then Australia, and then Qantas domestic, uh, and against them was ANSET, and they had so many different aircraft types. It was that was not a good look. <laughs> No, the costs associated with that must have been phenomenal when you consider yeah. you've got maintenance, you've got training, and just the logistics of a 146 might break down somewhere and there's not a, another 146 there yeah. to take on. So we've got another type. We have to then cover that with another crew. We have to take that out of another network, etc. So the, the synergies just weren't there that you have yeah. in a common fleet. And, and subsequently, the buying power of both yeah. parts and aircraft so um now it was a i guess it was some people would have quoted a recipe for disaster but no one was putting their hand up 
necessarily in saying that before it happened, but it, it definitely wasn't the most efficient way to run the company, I, I suspect. From a plane geeks and a plane spotter's point of view, the skies were certainly a lot more interesting. Back in <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfor- unfortunately, that didn't fund it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, Steve, we should have been tipping five bucks every time we saw an ANSET aircraft. Yeah. So um, you spent all your time in 7.3s? Yeah, the whole time I was on 7.3.7s and uh, until it fell over at the late in 2001. And where did you go after that? I mean, your, your bio mentions you went international. Um, are you able to t- say what happened after ANSET went belly up? Yeah, straight away I went to Centrelink um, <laughs> to, to sit there in an interview and be told I was highly qualified and totally useless. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's... yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so I, I actually went out to Bankstown again and taught ground school. And I started. Ansett fell over on the Friday, and I started teaching ground school on the Monday. And um, and I went to Centrelink to have a discussion with them. And at the same time, started to uh, put my applications in with the various companies that still were were surviving. And I was lucky enough to get a, a slot with one of the international carriers. And that I started that in 2002. And then from there, I spent uh, about five or six years on. 747s and now I'm back on the 737 with the same company so back where I began and, and very happy. Do you, do you actually all well, this gives me a good angle if you've if you've done international on the 74s and now you're in domestic on the 73s what's your preference flying long haul or flying domestic? That's a really personal choice uh for me, I, I probably lean towards domestic. I've got a very young family, though, and that means I'm away for the most two nights in a row. Yeah. But then again, th- there's people who absolutely love the, the long-haul lifestyle. So it's horses for course, and the fact that we don't all like the same thing avoids bottlenecks, I suspect. So <laughs> my, my, my personal choice is, is short-haul flying, and I, I really enjoy that. But having said that, I really enjoyed my time flying internationally in that, uh, as I've often said to people, the answer collapse in many ways was a, a career disadvantage, but it, it ultimately, I think, in many ways was a life advantage because I probably would have done the same operation for 30 or so years if, if ANSET hadn't have collapsed, whereas the collapse opened up a whole lot of new doors for me, one of those being the international flying that I saw what long-haul routes entailed and the considerations and the fuel policy and the diversity of weather and procedures. And um, on a more leisurely sense, I got to go to museums, air shows and uh, <laughs> theatre that I never would have had the opportunity to. I remember my first trip internationally, I was sitting on the shop to Lisa eating a croissant and I thought <laughs> so the company went broke and I, I'm, I'm having a coffee in Paris it could be worse yeah um, no, that so, is a- yeah so so it was a, a you know initially the shock of, of it all falling over but you know once again I hark back to the ambulance days if that's as bad as things get you, you can't honestly complain because there's yeah. a lot of out there doing it tough. Yeah, there were there were a few suicides that came out of the ANSET collapse. There, there were a lot of sad stories. There were, yeah. but it's yeah. um, it, it uh, for me, I was very very lucky. Yep. But um, yeah, so you know, the international, the short haul, it's to each their own. I probably lean towards short haul, but there's definitely advantages of both. Oh. For me, for, yeah, for me, the collapse though, it was the one the step that got me into riding as much as anything, I think, and that was probably another aspect where yeah, sure, the career sort of fell over a bit, but overall life sort of turned a corner now that that's interesting you should mention writing because steve i think that's a pretty good segue isn't it yeah we should have you on the show more often i wonder if you can segue like that <laughs> <laughs> 
I only found out what a Segway was about 10 minutes ago. No, it's, um, <laughs> as I said, sitting in Centrelink being told you were totally unemployable, I, I recognised I had to try and get some other skill set and uh, I, I went and did a, a master's degree and along the way that involved a lot of writing and then I started to write a few magazine articles for just journals and subsequent to that I just wrote more and more as it turned out and now I'm very lucky that I write for like Australian Aviation Magazine here and uh, and Flight Path on occasions in the UK Fly Past and I had something in Airliner the other day and Global Aviator in South Africa so it, it's turned into a real passion of mine in that I um, am able to write about something that I, I enjoy and it, it's given me a second string to the bow that should something happen to the career again heaven forbid I at least have something to fall back on this time yeah and that's that's one of those things and, and uh i'm fortunate that occurred yeah well you've also produced a book haven't you yeah yeah um that was that was a great experience it was a battle of britain veteran a scottish gentleman by the name of kenneth mcglashan and uh the book was called down to earth and it, it he literally flew from dunkirk to d-day and beyond as a fighter pilot he he got shot down over dunkirk he flew in the battle of britain he was at dieppe at the raid on dieppe and he he flew mosquitoes and jamming raids on d-day so he had an extremely diverse uh, military career and a very busy time in the raf and as much as writing the book was a buzz getting to know this gentleman was was an absolute pleasure for me so that writing for me has just opened up so many doors in in a personal sense that i i just love it to be I get to meet these people and sit down, have a cup of tea and listen to, to their experience and their tales. Yeah. And the, the, the chance to record them is great. And uh, hopefully it won't be the last book I do. I've got about three or four that I want to write. But at the moment, there's so many things happening that it's always hard to juggle between that and, and a, a young family. Yeah, our young families definitely take it out of you, Steve and I can both attest to that, having passed <laughs> through that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's all good fun. Okay, so once again, we're going to drop the original audio there. The next question I asked Owen pertained to the process of writing a book and how he found that process and whether or not it was lengthy and did he enjoy it? Here's his response to that question. I, I was very lucky again. I, I sound like I'm blessed, don't I? I, I, I met the chap and I, I wrote it in a reasonably quick time. I think I wrote it in three or four months. Wow. Uh, and I sent off the proposal to three or four publishing companies and two weren't interested. One was interested, but it just released two books on fighter pilots and the, the fourth company came back and said, we'll have it. Uh, and that all happened within probably a month of me finishing the manuscript. So um, it, it literally started to go through the, the publishing process within eight weeks of, of me hitting the end on the first or not the first draft the polished draft copy That's so awesome. um yeah so it was it, it it went very well for me and um as, as a consequence i i can't complain about the, the trials and tribulations of publishing because it it, it went very well and, and the folks over at grub street in the uk who published it they um were a great team over there and at that time i was flying to london and i got to meet them firsthand on a couple of occasions and we really launched handy. yeah we launched the book at the duxford air show oh nice and, yeah and it, it was um the whole experience was great and I can't wait to do another book. It's it's because it is just such a pleasurable experience and, and uh, the whole process for me. But at the moment, it's just the time management aspect. But no, I can't say it was a, a dreadful experience and you do hear some horror tales of it dragging on and on and on. Um, and I'm not to say that the next one won't won't go that way but uh my first experience was was first class yeah, beginner's luck perhaps Pos possibly possibly <laughs> yeah i'll take it i'll take oh, it oh yeah <laughs> it gives you it gives you a good good target to aim for for the next one well it does it does the hardest point is 
there's about three or four manuscripts that I've got drafted as a format and, and which one to go down that road. I've got, I've yeah. got a couple of ideas that I will, but um, it really does, which way do I go from here? But it, it, it'll be aviation-based for the foreseeable future. I may well write a novel down the track as well, but I'm sticking to what I know and what I enjoy and what I love for the moment, and it, it's it's working. Well, that's where the passion is and that's where the energy is. I know from my own personal aspect, I, I've got way more energy in my life thanks to this podcast and getting me buzzed up and flying and, and diving back into it all again than anything I've done for a very long time. And it's it's you know make it made me wake up to the fact that what it used to be, I, I used to get a lot of buzz out of doing IT work, and it, it's fun, but yeah, it's I'm getting way more buzz out of stuff I love. Then that with that passion comes the energy to just stay up late and get it done. Exactly. Well, that's what, as I said, ants it fell over. Yeah, that was dreadful career consequence for me. However, when I look at what's happened as a result of it, that I, I went to university and did this course, that I've had a book published, I'm now writing for magazines and doing these other things. I've actually got more general interest in my life and and the fact is I I still enjoy my flying every bit as much as I ever did it it hasn't detracted from that at all I I do my writing generally between 4 and 6am of a morning before the kids get up (laughs) yeah and uh and and other than that my life hasn't really changed I still fly etc but the the writing has just given it that extra angle and rather than just wasted time in hotel rooms sometimes I, I can arrive with a specific task and sit down and do that. Yeah, that is good. Yeah, I, I certainly find through doing this podcast, and uh, Grant and I have been doing this for what, about three months now, uh, my job has become a real distraction in my life now. <laughs> <laughs> Pays the bills, dude. Yeah, Pays the bills. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I can see that occurring. No, it, um, I'm very careful in how the ratio I keep it in at the moment but I, I just keep it there also in that status as I said before that if something did happen in terms of my aviation career heaven forbid again it is in a position hopefully that I could ramp it up a little bit and do a bit more but um, I just try to do the regular columns that I do and um, do them as well as I can and not try to overload myself with too much work No, that is important Yeah. and uh, for the benefit of our audience uh, Owen um, particularly those of us who read Australian Aviation and Grant and I mentioned just about every week that that's our favourite aviation magazine. Indeed. What's the nature of the articles that you're writing in those? Uh, uh, it's, it's a little varied. I do air tests on certain aircraft types um, as they arise. I tend to write an, a fair percentage of the technical articles such as ADSB or RNAV approaches or if there's some topic that uh, there's been an advance in that technology, I'll tend to ride on those so uh, I flew the A380 simulator when it first came online and wrote an article about flying the A380 sim so it's a fair mix actually um, but generally split between air testing the aircraft and um, uh, technical articles for for Australian aviation yeah and it's once again they're a great pack of people it's just it's as much a family as a place to work that is good that's that's a wonderful thing and uh, especially when it gives you opportunities to I don't know fly the Citation X (laughs) yeah yeah that was good that was good yeah it uh, gets up and goes I'll uh, bet yeah, about point nine, I think we went across to Adelaide at. So it's a, a very impressive aircraft. And equally impressive is that for an aircraft designed that, that can be in, um, you know, relatively pro- low-time pilot, not low-time pilots, but it can be a private category operation, it, it's well designed that it's got an effective speed brake and can slow the aircraft down. So it can go at those high speeds en route, but it's very manageable to decelerate into the, the traffic pattern. Very handy. Yeah. Now, um, 
one thing you've you've mentioned a couple of times time management and you know not just the young family but a few things that are sort of keeping you from doing any more writing well one of those things uh, to jump back on my segue again is the famous uh, there and back concept. yeah yeah it's um it, it sort of grew up out of uh I'd always wanted to do a reasonably long-distance flight, and I don't know where that that dream will actually end. It could go far further than this one, but I thought a good way to start is to to demonstrate aviation in Australia in its centenary year, which is next year's the centenary of, of powered flight in 2010. Yep. And I thought a flight around Australia would be a good way to do that. And fortunately, uh, Jabiru Aircraft came on board with the project and have, have got a, a Jabiru J230 they're providing me with to do it, which once again continues with that theme of all Australian. Yeah. And and the other aspect of it is the accessibility of aviation. Um, the Jabiru is a relatively inexpensive aeroplane. I'll be able to go into these different outback towns, etc., and show that aviation is within the grasp of, you know, a fair percentage of the population. It isn't just the, the contrails up in the sky. It, it is a grassroots level activity if, if you really want to do it. And hopefully along the way, I'll, I'll be able to raise some funds for the Royal Flying Doctor Service as well. Which is a definitely a good cause. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, are you are you going to be flying that solo the whole way? Or are you having people join you on various legs? Or uh, I'm flying the aircraft solo en route. Um, I am just in the planning stages of, of certain aspects of it. And it has been suggested to me, and it's something I'm considering at the moment, different aero clubs and that have contacted me about... Um, maybe as I pass through certain townships, some of the aircraft coming up and flying in company to see me off or welcoming yeah. me into their circuit area. And that's something I, I'm considering at the moment. I'd like, obviously, encouraging wherever I go for, for as many people to come out and say good day as, as possible. Um, but the actual execution of the exercise, no, I'll be flying the aircraft solo. Okay. Because I know, I know some, some people have done, you know, long um, fundraising flights of either you know they've set off someone wants to fly on a leg or things like that um, auction off the space or let people contribute some money towards it to help go towards the fundraising you know those kind of ideas yeah yeah I, I had um, considered that one stage I that was one plan in the very early stages but um, just for this exercise I, I thought I'll do a solo exercise to reduce the amount of variables a little bit too yeah. um, in it but it, it, to show that it can be done one person one aeroplane Yep, it's it's an aviation friendly country. Let's go. That's great, <laughs> and it's interesting that you're going in the in the Jabiru too. We've been talking in our last couple of episodes about the you know the ever increasing prevalence of these these newer LSAs and, and these sort of aircraft. So uh, the Jabiru is certainly a really sporty looking machine, and um, obviously um, you're quite confident in its, in its ability to do the job. Yeah, and and they've really evolved. I went up and air tested the J430, which is the four seater version of the 230 and um, it's a substantial aeroplane it's uh, got 120 knot TAS and uh, good range and most of the people sort of still when they use the word ultralight or sports aircraft imagine the old Skycraft Scout of the 1970s which was <laughs> you know a, a fabric and tube garden seat behind a, a Victor mower but it, it, as, as you quite rightly said LSA and sports aircraft have come a long long way and the performance of a number of them blow away the traditional two-seaters of Cessna 152s and Tomahawks. They're very efficient aeroplanes. And the Jabiru have gone down that road very well. It's a, a great aircraft to fly. It doesn't have, people sort of say, sports category, and they imagine it, it's a, a small, tinny little aeroplane. This is a substantial aeroplane. It'll lift four people, and it'll have good range and go at 120 knots. So you've straight away got about 30 knots over a 152 or a, a Tomahawk. Yeah, no. 
imagine the endurance would be probably four hours between stops or yeah no it, it's actually got a, a bit more than that it carries 135 liters and plans on around 24 25 an hour uh so you, you, you've got in excess of five hours, around five hours with reserves and doing 120 knots. So you could probably look at comfortably doing 550 to 600 nautical mile yeah, with full tanks. The aircraft you've got pictured on your website, is that the one you'll be flying? Uh, no, the one that I'll be flying, they're actually cons- going to commence construction of it in uh, the new year. And it, that's one thing I'm going to follow on the website, actually, is the construction of that aeroplane. Uh, it, it coming to be. That is the one on the website. Is the actual one that I air tested for the magazine. Right. Uh, what 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 just marvels, what amazes me with these is the uh, the, the level of technology in the cockpit. Oh. We look at. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. That's one thing that's I've I've been struck by. It's glass cockpits and um, just amazing technology. And it's just it's it's like computers or anything. They're getting faster, smaller, and cheaper with every generation that evolves. Yeah. And it's about eighteen months per generation. Typically, for a computer, for computers at least, that's the general. When you're looking at the generative iterations, it's about eighteen months on average. Yeah, yeah, and and you can see it in these these aircraft. And I know a chap locally who, who built his aircraft up, and he said for the price he paid to put in one of these multifunction screens, he couldn't equip it with the, the standard six dials. It, it was just <laughs> a cheaper option to put the glass in it. And so you've got to wonder where that's going to go down the track. I, I flew an aircraft recently with the um, Garmin G1000 in it, and, yeah. and that beats anything that's sitting in the flight levels pretty much these days. It was amazing. Yeah, it is. We still you have to have a, a reasonable training fleet out there with steam gauges in it because obviously it's, it's advantageous for students coming through to be learning to fly the old-fashioned way before they move on to the technology. I mean, what if that technology fails for some whole reason? Yeah, I think, I think it gets back to the almost the MPL debate, doesn't it? Um, it's a cultural change. And I, at the moment, we've still got the three basic analog instruments sitting along the top. But yeah, how how do you train? This is one of the things that institutions are going through at the moment. To, if you switch it all off, that's negative training. The good <laughs> key is there to be used. Yeah. Um, so once again, implementation and training is often a little bit behind the evolution of the technology. And this this is a major cultural change in flight training. How do we do it? And is it old-fashioned to say? these things will fall over they have triple redundancies etc and a lot of the airliners even their standby instruments are basically EFIS generated standby so if they have independent power sources what are the chances of it um, falling over if they learn to fly attitudes and fly power settings and that you've got to wonder about it yeah yeah <laughs> When I was learning to fly, I was doing my instrument rating in uh, 1991 over in the States, and our aircraft, we, I was flying a 172, and it was pretty high-tech for its time. We had a North Star Loran system yeah. in there. Huh. That was yeah. an amazing piece of technology where you basically put the line in the middle of the bubble and just follow the line, and it was fantastic. But uh, my flight instructor, he'd, he'd catch me peeking off to one side of the hood and looking over it, and he'd pull the circuit breaker on it. <laughs> yeah. That, that instrument's failed now fly properly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wrote an article um, recently for Global Aviator on, on the role of GPS in VFR navigation, for instance, and uh, I made the point that it is a, a very valuable tool, but it's not the entire toolbox. And 
you, you have to it takes a totally different skill set to fly prolonged sectors like if someone just goes direct to everywhere what hmm. um, waypoints serve a purpose beyond just uh their navigational benefits a waypoint prompts that cycle of activity to check my ground speed to manage my fuel to do all these auxiliary tasks now if you're just going direct to straight line longer sector that's starting to dictate a different skill set to get into that cycle of activity to prompt yourself because you don't have those waypoints anymore yeah. it's, it's like when you're first I'm learning looking. to do cross countries and you do the um, you know you mark mark your um, two minute or five minute marks where you expect to be and, and then you're traveling to those and every time you reach the mark as you're saying you go and do your check your fuel check this is everything going as it's supposed to be going yeah and in a lot of cases um, you found that people did this when they passed overhead a town or a river or a railway bridge or whatever it was and if you're just flying go to it's probably going to be the most efficient way to do it but we have to look at the training to modify it that people still maintain their cycle of activity and don't neglect their fundamental navigation and don't neglect their cockpit management so it's um and once again like mpl or anything else it's a cultural change it's probably the way of the future there's no use um burning the books we have to just say all right how are we going to best train people for this and and to respect the direct to button that they don't just go shortest distance okay but that what's the lowest safe on that track oh it's about four thousand feet higher or maybe i will go via that waypoint it may be that is a more um prudent way to do it so once again it's the technology will call for a, a different slant on the training and a different slant on the culture but but there's some good minds out there we'll get there for sure yeah, and uh, direct two, even if it doesn't take you, you know, even if you don't look at your lowest safe, direct two takes you right over tiger country. Oops. Exactly, exactly. That That's one of my primary um, issues with, with the use of it at the moment that I have seen people just go, oh, direct two, and it's like, well, no, that that isn't what it's about. Let's have a yep. look at the topography as well or the CTA or et yep. cetera, et cetera. And, um yeah, it, once again, it's it's part of your your overall toolkit. It's it's provided a tremendous enhancement to situational awareness in the cockpit. But you use it as part of the the overall system. Don't let it become the dictating factor in it. Yeah, definitely, it's a tool. It's not the be all and end all. Exactly. Yeah, it's it, it's part of it. Yeah. But um, it, it's here to stay, and it's it's affordable and it's precise. Let's use it to its best advantage. Yep. So speaking of navigation, if we come back to your uh, to your flight, uh, you're starting in Melbourne or where? where no, you no, I'll start at Bundaberg. Bundaberg is where the Jabberoos are made and also that obviously it's the home of Bert Hinkler. Lovely part of the world. Yeah, and Bert Hinkler was my boyhood hero, so there's a lot of um, synergy there for me to um, depart and return to Bundaberg. Uh, I, I was up there, obviously, for the, the flight test recently and, and also the Wide Bay Air Show, and I think it's fantastic. They've got a, a wonderful Hinkler Hall of Aviation up there that's only been open about a year, and uh, right beside it is Mon Repo, which is Hinkler's home <laughs> that was brought brick yeah. by brick back from the UK, and to walk through there just puts the hair up on the back of your neck. It's um, a, a tremendous place to visit any anyone with a sense of aviation history or just an interest in aviation uh it, it, it's a tra- uh, perfect place to visit yeah okay mm. uh, in which direction will you be heading from there up <laughs> i hope now um, i'll be heading um from there the, the draft route at the moment is i'll be heading from there across through long reach and then working my way up towards the top end up to darwin cross down the Kimberleys towards Broome and then down towards Perth across towards the Bight and um, uh, Woomera, Adelaide, 
then across Bass Strait down to Tassie, back up via um, Flinders Island and Point Cook, and obviously the significant points there at Point Cook, and you've yep. got Mia Mia for the Dugan first flight, and um, around Melton there where Houdini did his first flight in, 2000, in 1910 as well, and worked my way back up um, past probably, I'm hoping, Tamora, Canberra, hometown here, and uh, Sydney, then up uh, via Toowoomba, where my, my father's buried actually, and then um, up to Bundaberg. So it's a fair lap. Yeah, that is that is a good, and that's a good historical route, of course, Longreach being the birthplace of Qantas and the current um, Long Qantas Museum and so on. So uh, yeah, the, yeah, there's lots of milestones. there's lots of subtle little ones in there too, like um, Julia Creek to Cloncurry Clon to Julia Creek was actually the first uh, sector flown by the Flying Doctor back in. 1928 so just Excellent. to sort of touch base with that and um there's a, there's a number of little subtle uh waypoints along the way that have meaning and um obviously i'll miss some obviously you can't cover them all but hopefully i can get a good sample bag for the people out there to um get a feel for our aviation history and, and what a great broad country we have and i've got as you probably saw on the website of spider tracks uh, providing me with a satellite tracking system yep. and uh that will plot my position basically every six minutes on the website. So people will be able to note the ground speed and the altitude and how far off course I am. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, know, you say I'm not taking anyone. No, I'm taking, I'm taking the internet on the back seat. Um, yeah, that's yeah. scary. <laughs> yeah, I'll just put a post-it note, don't do anything dumb. And, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it's... It, it's great the facilities of the technology that you speak about that spider track system I've, I've done a few flights with it on board and it's it's great people can um just watch where you are bit by bit i, I did a flight recently and my wife just left the computer on and knew exactly where i was so it's uh it's got a safety aspect but from the there and back project uh side of things it, it really helps with that interactivity oh, yeah. of, of people who are following it like we've got twitter we've got the website but there and back with the spider tracks, they'll be able to say, when's he getting out to the airport at Longreach or whatever? Oh, he's just out there. We'll drive out now. Oh, he'll come over the top of such and such. And, yeah. Um, that'll give them the chance to really be interactive with the flight, which is, once again, what I said, I want to really emphasise the accessibility and, and generate interest in aviation in this country. Yep. Yeah, we'd, we'd certainly like to catch up with him. We're touching at Point Cook, and we can certainly head over for that. Oh, definitely. Yeah, come yeah. and say hi. Great, great. No, that's that's... What I'm encouraging people to do once I, I promulgate the route and put it out there is, is for as many people as possible, and hopefully around the traps I'll um, go and go and do a, a few speaking engagements as well, just to talk about aviation in this country and that at, at different ports of call as well. Yeah, and help um, promote. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and at times it's forgotten, and even the fact that you know a company like Jabiru they've built nearly 2,000 airframes and 6,000 engines, and they're an Austra all Australian company. But yeah. we don't think. We think of Hinkler and Kingston Smith and Laura's Bonnie, etc., but we don't realise that we do actually have a manufacturing industry here in, in aviation. Yeah, we've mentioned that a couple of times the last few episodes about uh, Jabiru and Gippsland Aeronautics and exactly. uh, the, the Whitney Boomerang and yep. all these guys. Yeah, and, you know, they, they're sort of pushing against the stream to make things work, and they, they're doing a good job. Yeah. So it's, um, I think it's time it was recognised. And uh, as I said, one of the, the steps of how far aviation's come in 100 years is the fact that it, it, it's remarkable in the fact that it's unremarkable. Yeah. Uh, it, it, the, we aren't folklore heroes anymore heralded on shoulders by crowds for flying around Australia. No, if you've got a bit of aptitude, a bit of attitude, due determination, you can do it. 
Yeah, just and the, the, what, what you've got crowds saying more is go away with your nasty noise and let us take over the land of that airport. Yeah, you, you've got that, and you'll always get that. Um, I think probably one of the the best defences though is uh, to show the integral role that aviation plays in the community, rather than yep. bite back. Is say, well, look, our airstrips used by the rural fire service of when there's fires to operate as a, a base or you know the, the emergency rescue helicopters come in here or this that the other it does serve purposes the community it provides jobs or whatever your particular yeah. airfield does and i think airfields probably should be a bit more proactive in engaging the community and saying we're here and this is what we do and we don't charge the ratepayer for this we fund it ourselves yeah um rather than either taking an adversarial attitude or or the other common one is often, oh, gee, I hope this doesn't shut the aerodrome down. Well, no, get out there and yeah. let them know that it is part of the community and we're, we're listening and we'll try and modify our circuit area or whatever to, to fit in with the greater community. But we do also provide a, a, a service to the community. And I don't think that's emphasised enough. I know our local airfield, we've got retardant in tanks that the Rural Fire Service use for water bombing operations. We've got um, the Australian Air League, a community youth group, use yep. the facilities we um th there's a number of things that we have when we have an open day we have the chaps out there with the buckets for the rural fire service and that's so it, it plays its role in the community without imposing on the tax the ratepayer as such so i think Definitely. we just need to remind the community that we're, we're part of it and not get into headbutting exercises yeah, some more of that quiet achiever promotional get the word out and build up that level so that when yeah. anything does go wrong people go well yeah that happened but what about exactly. this, 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 this and this? Yeah, probably we've got a good history in this industry of being quiet achievers and we probably need to be a little less quiet about it. Yeah, well, I think we really, really need to pull the mindset away from, from that of considering uh, GA an elitist, you know, rich boy sport. It's it's, it's much more than that. And oh, really need to yeah, to exactly. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and that's why I was very happy that we, we had a few proposals on the table that we went with Jabiru for this flight because I really think it sends that message. You look at it and you go, gee, it's it's not a Super King Air, it's that, and what's this cost? Oh, gee, just a second. What's a BMW yeah. cost? What's a, you know, I, I had to buy a family wagon recently. And, <laughs> you know, you're sort of going, gee, it's not that different a price. Yeah. Mm. The fuel burn isn't that different either. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it, the accessibility of aviation in this country, I'd like to em really emphasise that if I could and get that point across as I go along the way. And then when I come back, all being well, get a, a DVD made up with some of the footage that I've made and, and even maybe do a, a, a book on that. I, I've considered that. It all comes down to time management once again. But <laughs> um, getting the word out there, Australian Aviation and the different magazines have been right behind it. So yeah. I don't doubt that there'll be articles in the lead up and articles once it's done as well but if i can get it out there in the broader community as well that'll be great yeah well, i'm sure i'm sure we'll be touching base with you a few more times between now and the start and during and after and so on that will definitely get you on for a quick chat here and there that'll be great no worries at all even when i'm going around the traps i'm i'm going to equip myself with this iphone technology and uh <laughs> make sure that i'm in touch i'm just fascinated that you can pull up napes and the weather and all those things just so <laughs> in a handheld unit i think that's phenomenal. That's so um, I'll um, definitely be having one of those. But no, more than happy to talk before, after, during. Cool. That'll be awesome. And uh, so one of the questions that's undoubtedly coming out from the people listening is going to be, how can they get involved? How can they help? Well, probably the first step would be to uh, just visit the website, which uh, is www 
thereandback.com.au and have a look around because the first and primary thing there is there is the donate page for the Royal Flying Doctor Service and just click on that and that'll take you to the, the RFDS website and um, there's the ability to make contributions there. And in terms of being involved in the flight, well, you'll see the different prompts there that'll take you to, to the Twitter page so you can follow what we're actually doing in terms of the planning phases, where the aircraft construction's up to or anything that pops up from day to day. And as you can imagine, planning a logistics exercise like this, there, there are things that pop up from time to time. <laughs> Um, there's been yeah. a couple of clangers in the last few weeks, but uh, that's all part of the fun, actually. And my wife actually said to me, if you're writing a book, these things have got to go in as well. Oh, yeah. It's, it's all part of the journey, bumps in the road as well. So and you're, um, you're keeping a log of it all. So, you know, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So it, it won't be that big a job to convert into a text because I'm, I'm keeping a diary as we go along. But um, through, through the website, obviously, there'll be a, a page coming up also that will follow the progress of the construction of the Jabiru which I think will be really interesting from my perspective as much as anything. And the people up there are cooperating fantastically and are going to send some images down at each stage of awesome. construction and development of the engine and that. So if you visit the page, come back again down the track, there'll be different things. And... Um, they're probably the key ways to be involved with the flight and I'll also update where it's going to, to go and where I'm going to be speaking or come out and see me at the aerodrome or, or the different activities that are, that are associated with the flight. So the website, it looks pretty easy to navigate around. The chaps have been really good in the design of that and um, that'll keep you up to date. I'll, I'll make every effort to keep the the information turning over there and outside of the the um, actual project the blog and the articles i'll be posting things i write for different magazines around the world and that on the the website as well for people just to have right. a read once yep. they've done their their lap of the the, <laughs> the, the the business in um in the magazines i'll just be putting articles there for general interest for people to read spread that's the word great. of aviation that's great yeah I've, i'm hooked in with the rss feed now so that's in my um, aviation feed reader so oh, great I, I'm, I'm still working out what rss feed is to be perfectly honest but I, I've just <laughs> I've just nutted it out. My the, the chap who set up my website, I think I'm his greatest source of amusement. <laughs> um, but it, it's it, I'm getting there. I think it was in the words of Forrest Gump. I'm not a smart man, but uh, but it, it's getting there definitely. I'm learning. It's another aspect of the journey for me. I'm learning all about IT and websites now. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome because I mean, you know, most people take one look at the flight deck of a seven three seven and go, "Oh my God, how do you manage?" And yeah. you know, you're, you're coming from the other angle, which is, you know, a lot of these people would be like, "Well, yeah, RSS feed is just this thing, and you put it in your reader, blah blah blah." And you're yeah. like, "Yeah, well, this one I just do the FMC, and and yeah." <laughs> yeah, horses for courses. We're all comfortable in our own zones, aren't we? Part of the fun is stepping out of that zone, I think. Oh yeah, but yeah, no, it's 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 all well and good, and um, like I said, the the key is to show the accessibility of aviation and um, celebrate the fact that it's 100 years since we've had powered flight in this country. Well, that's awesome. That's great stuff. Probably ought to wrap it up there. We've taken a lot of your time. We really appreciate this, Owen. Uh, the website, once again, folks, is uh, thereandback.com.au. Uh, Owen, it's Owen's up, all one word on Twitter? Uh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. I, I remembered that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's one word on Twitter. And um, and you got the, the web address dead right. Yeah. Okay details up on the show notes for this episode. Oh, I've, I've got a huge list of things. I'll be linking to Ambos, to Anset, to Royal New South Wales, um, the club, the, the, the Skycraft Scout. I found a uh, page for that because there's actually a uh, Skycraft Scout hanging in the Powerhouse Museum. There is. There yeah. is. A, 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 if I can digress for one moment, I um, they have the National Aviation Press Club Awards at the Powerhouse yes. Museum each year. And um, 
the first time I attended that, I was lucky enough to win an award and I was standing there having my photo taken and when I looked up, there was a Queen Air Alpha Mike Bravo hanging from the roof and my father flew that aircraft for its very last sector after it had been stripped. He flew from Tamworth to Sydney where it wow. was subsequently dismantled. I thought, yeah, he's still around. Yeah. <laughs> he's up there. He's up there. So, um, yeah, the Powerhouse Museum, it's got some great stuff there. Yeah, no, it's an awesome museum. It's been a long time since I was there, but it's definitely next time I've got some time in Sydney, I'll be dropping by and hopefully taking my son with me to check it all out. Yeah, yeah, well worth the effort. Yep. Okay, um, well, it's been a, a fascinating journey with you here on the podcast tonight, and it looks like you've got a, a number of even more fascinating journeys to uh, to come in the future, and uh, it was great to meet you, and uh, thanks so much for joining us tonight on the show. Hey, thanks, guys. It's been been a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, Owen. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. No worries at all. Any time. Well, heck, we've been asked to say something good about the podcast down under. Does anybody have anything? No, let's talk about our own podcast instead. You mean the Airplane Geeks? The Airplane Geeks podcast. You mean the the people that taught the people down under how to do it? You mean the people who speak normally? That's right. And where can people find the Airplane Geeks podcast? That would be www.airplanegeeks.com. And we know how to take care of our friends. We don't let people train us and then just kind of try to one-up them with a better podcast. We don't do that. We're staying at our mediocre level where we belong. We know our place in the world. (laughs) Long live mediocrity. That's right. PCDU, we actively encourage participation from our audience. To leave a comment or suggestion, or for further information on how you can support the podcast, please visit our website at www.plaincrazydownunder.com. Well, that was a great interview, and uh, here we are. We've come out of that one, and thanks to the miracle of modern technology, it's now a couple of days later, and uh, we've got Owen back on the line again to uh, finish up the interview and uh, do a little bit of a giveaway. So, oh, and one of the big questions we didn't really throw at you while we were chatting the other night was uh, just what's involved in planning this flight? Yeah, it, it's it's probably one of the major undertakings uh, to do it in, in an efficient fashion. We're obviously trying to tie in points of historical significance for aviation being the centenary year, trying to tie in some points with the RFDS and also showcase aviation to as many people as possible. So you, you'll never please all of the people all of the time, but we're, we're trying to um, refine a route that does most of those tasks. And anyone who's done any flight planning knows that even if you're just going from Sydney to Melbourne, there's, there's a number of variables and, and we come up against that. But the, the one benefit we have that in addition to the charts and whack rules and, and slide rules, we in this day and age, we have computer software and that, and I've, I've been lucky enough to be sponsored by Champagne PC and using their flight planning software. And whilst you still reinforce it with um, your charts and all your, your manual means, it is a tremendous say in terms of the flight planning and, and a great time saver. Oh, cool. That's that's great. Very lucky to get uh, people like that sponsoring. Yep. You've, had, you've had a lot of great sponsors on this flight, I, I see. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, Jabiru supplying the aeroplane has been a magnificent uh, sponsor, but in, in addition to that, 
got press coverage straight up from Australian Aviation Magazine and Global Aviator in South Africa, and uh, Spider Tracks providing a, a satellite tracking system. So they were they were the core people who got on board just when this was an idea of what do you think of this and. They came on without a blink, basically. So it, it, there's the interest I, I can't emphasise enough is spiralling at the moment. I'm getting emails. I had one the other day from Switzerland since the last uh, time we spoke. <laughs> so there's a, a lot of interest and it seems to be be growing every day. So for those people to get on board and, and make it happen, that was that was key in the whole undertaking ever occurring. One way we thought we might be able to generate a little bit more interest for the uh, flight that you're going to undertake, Owen, is if we engaged in some sort of uh, giveaway, some sort of, we can't really call it a competition, Grant, can we? Because that's not really legal, but uh, we come up with a bit of an idea um, where we thought we might uh, be able to help out. Yeah, that yeah. sounds great. Yeah, that's right, folks. Uh, Owen has graciously donated a copy of his excellent book, Down to Earth, a fighter pilot's experiences of surviving Dunkirk, the Battle of Britain, Dieppe and D-Day. I've probably pronounced that wrong. But uh, an excellent book, and I'm holding in my hands a, a copy, all signed, ready to go. Uh, so this has been signed by Owen, and he's donated it to the cause. So we're going to run a, uh, a giveaway here uh, with a slight catch. Uh, where I'd normally say first caller through, well, that's just obviously not going to work in this scenario. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to set you up with a little bit of a challenge, aren't we, Steve? Yeah, the uh, the idea would be that Owen's uh, undertaking his uh, flight, which we've talked about during the interview, and um, he's looking for possible suggestions about some places he might uh, touch down in along the way. That's right. So uh, what we're looking at is if you go to Owen's website, www.thereandback.com.au, and have a look at the proposed flight, the route, and the historical places he's going to, then what we want you to do is to email us at plainecrazydownunder at gmail.com with places you think that Owen should visit one, two, however many you uh, you think you should visit. But you've got to give a justification for why. Give the reasons why Owen should go there. We'll work through the entries with Owen and select a winner who's going to receive the book. Uh, of course, the usual conditions apply and that all entries become Owen's to use as he sees fit. Owen's decision is final and so on. Yeah, that kind of takes the pressure off us too, which is really good as a bonus. Yeah, we, we just get to have a read and go, hey, this is a good one. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, we need to put a time constraint on this because people will download this podcast at all different uh, times of the uh, the week and the year. So we're recording uh, this little piece now. It is October the 19th on the Monday. This podcast will be released on the 21st. So let's, let's say between episodes 13 and, what do you reckon, grand episodes 13 and 15? That's a couple of weeks. Yeah, I think if we give everyone uh, two or three weeks. So. So uh, let's see how we're going uh, early in November and uh, cap it from there. Does that work for you, Owen? That sounds great with me. Yeah, no, no I'm, I'm keen to hear it because actually one of the, the planning uh, sectors we've already got in was suggested by someone who visited the website. So I, I never profess to know everything about everything. So if anyone's got a great suggestion out there, we're, we're all ears. Okay, so come on, listeners, put the challenge in. Uh, you could win an excellent book. And it's signed as well. And uh, just just to probably a little uh, rider there to um, go to Owen's website, have a look at the map and his proposed route. So, you know, he obviously can't fly from, you know, Darwin down to Alice Springs and then back up to his route. But if you're, uh, you know, if it's it's somewhere that's vaguely along that uh, flight path that he's taking, that would be very helpful. Yeah, the less dog legs, the better, I guess. Now, now Owen, a question for you. Are you going to be at the uh, Century of Flight celebrations at Diggers Rest in Victoria, March 18th to 21st? Is that linked in with your schedule? Yeah, that, that won't actually be occurring in, in unison with the flight as such. I've had contact with them in the last um, fortnight, and I'm actually available to drive down for that. I, I've been speaking to them. I'm looking at also dropping in there on the way through during the there and back flight because there's a few 
things in Victoria are obviously of great significance. There's Point Cook, there's yep. Digger's Rest, there's also Mia Mia and the Dugan Flyer. So in May, I'll definitely be coming through. But in terms of the celebrations in March, I'll be going down there probably by the, the age-old form of transport known as road. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's how we're getting to tomorrow this weekend, so we're not going to uh, raise any questions on that one, mate. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> very true, very true. Yeah. Excellent. Well, when, you're, when you're at tomorrow, have a look in the museum. They've got a great display on the raffing career on the wall when I was down there last time. Oh, excellent. Yeah, we're hoping to make some interviews and things like that happen. Someplace I've long aspired to go to and have never been to, so uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting up there. I'm not looking forward to the six-hour drive but apart from that <laughs> uh, we can swap it <laughs> yeah well okay that's everything we have uh, for this week in a, uh, a really interesting episode of playing crazy and under owens up uh, we really appreciate you coming in for the interview and coming back again tonight to help us finish it off owens website is www.thereandback.com.au and what, what i was just thinking too folks was um we've been plugging our donate button on our website the last couple of weeks and we appreciate those of you who have been uh, supporting us with a few dollars here and there what i'm thinking this week is instead of if you were thinking of sending some money to us this week why not click onto owens website instead there's a, a link on that website that'll take you straight to the royal flying doctor service and uh send a few dollars their way instead it's uh, much more needed over there very divert, deserving cause yeah, so, thanks very much guys like they certainly are yeah no yep. indeed it's a good thing and uh yeah, no, it's, it's been a great episode, Owen. We've really enjoyed having you on to have a chat and uh, hope you've enjoyed uh, enjoyed your time here. And I'm definitely looking forward to seeing how we go with uh, some submissions to win this book. Great. Thanks very much. And thanks for your interest in the project, guys. It's um, Hopefully, when it comes about next May, it'll all, all tie in nicely. And I'm, I'm just as keen to hear for the suggestions about the, the routing of the flight around Australia. So thanks for your support and thanks for your interest. And to all the listeners, um, I hope uh, you follow there and back as we doodle around Australia next year. Yep, and send those entries in, folks. Um, some suggestions for Owen, like we said, for places for him to fly to while he's doing his uh, great trek around Australia. And that email address, once again, is plancrazydownunder at gmail.com. Come on down, folks. You can also, uh, if you want to, put your comments on the website. But uh, yeah, probably best to send it via email, plancrazydownunder at gmail.com. And as always, folks, you can find show notes to everything we talk about here on the podcast at our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Our theme music comes to you every week, courtesy of soundsnap.com. The track we use is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson, and actually any other backing track you hear on our website also comes from Brian Simpson. We think he's uh, one of the better artist ops at soundsnap.com. You can visit our fan page on Facebook, and you can also find us on Twitter. Grant, what's our Twitter handle? Our Twitter handle is, of course, P-C-D-U. That's it. Four simple letters. So you can you can find us on Twitter as PCDU. You can find Steve online as Steve Vischer, or one word, on Twitter and Facebook and via his blog at www.ozfly.com. You can find me online as Falcon124 on Twitter and via my blog as blog.flymefriendly.com. And you can find Owen, as we've said, at www.thereandback.com.au. And Owen, you're on Twitter, aren't you? Yeah, just simply my name, Owen's up. O-W-E-N-Z-U-P-P. There you go, folks. Excellent. Once again, folks, a big apology for the uh, poor quality of the audio through this interview. We uh, will work on that until the next time. But until the next time, when you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts.
kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Thanks, folks.